0: This is a talk by Joel, titled, Meditation 5, Doing Nothing, recorded at the 2003 Fall Retreat at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington.
1: All right, well, first I have to uh, fess up to a mistake I made last night. At the very end, I had already read you the evening gatha that I was going to read, so I try to remember this Zen story, and as I told it, you know, something was wrong, obviously. (laughs) So I went back and looked it up. It comes from this book, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and I looked it up. Sure enough, I'd gotten the story of Joshu and the old woman mixed up with a story about a monk who's in meditation. So this is the story of Joshu and the old woman I was trying to get straight. So I actually asked Tom to read it so we make sure that we get this straight and then we won't be on your, you know, bothering you, okay?
0: So, this is called Joshua Investigates. A traveling monk asked an old woman the road to Taizan, a popular temple supposed to give wisdom to the one who worships there. The old woman said, go straight ahead, When the monk proceeded a few steps she said to herself he also is a common churchgoer someone told this incident to joshua who said wait until i investigate the next day he went and asked the same question and the old woman gave the same answer joshua remarked i have investigated that old woman
1: Now, we got that cleared up, we can go on. Right? Thank you very much. I appreciate I it. Yeah. It was a lot better than what you told it last night. What? It was a lot better than what you
2: told last night.
1: You know what? Uh, I tell you this about me. I don't have a good mind for detail. And very often, I'll repeat a story, and if you go find it, you'll see that this isn't quite the way Joel told it or whatever. But the essence is still true, I mean, as far as we can say that about a story. Um, In Islam, they have hadiths. Second only to the Quran, hadith is the most important body of teachings. And the hadith are sayings of the Prophet that have come down. The Quran was given to him by revelation, but then he said things or did things and they're recorded. And apparently in the first centuries, you know, people were making up things and attributing it to Muhammad. So they got very careful about trying to make sure that they could trace this lineage as an authentic saying of the Prophet. So they say, you know, who is... The direct companion that he said it to, and then who did he tell, and who did he tell? So they have these genealogies, and there are several collections of them. They differ slightly, and people still today, you know, debate whether this was authentic or whatever. But Ibn Arabi has a kind of twist on that. He has several hadiths that he quotes that they're common hadiths, but they can't be authenticated. I mean, in, by that genealogy process, and he admits that he says, "No, these are not authenticated by this genealogy, but they're authenticated by unveiling." In other words, they're true, you know, regardless of uh, whether they can be traced back to the prophet. So I think you'll find, even though I get the details wrong and all that, that uh, they are true by unveiling. (laughs) Including that story last night. (laughs) Okay. Now, we're getting to the highest teachings. And If you remember back to Saturday, we started just with concentration, just concentrating on your mantra or your breath. And I know some of you were sitting there bored and thinking, oh, I just have to get over today. It'll be okay because then we'll start having the teachings and it'll really get interesting. And I know Joel, he always goes to the high teachings at the end and da, 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 da. So here we are at that very point that those of you who are looking forward to it, now we have arrived. I'm warning you in front, you're not going to like it.
2: <laughs>
1: I want you to watch that. Here's Huang Po, we've been quoting all along here, Zen Buddhist master, and he's talking about Bodhi. Bodhi is just another term for Buddha nature or Buddha mind. Bodhi is no state. The Buddha did not attain to it. Sentient beings do not like it. It cannot be reached with a body nor sought with the mind. All sentient beings are already of one form with Bodhi. Well, these crazy Zen masters, they talk in nonsense and riddles and stuff, so maybe this is just some crazy Zen teaching. But listen to Ramana Maharshi. There is no reaching the self. This is, of course, with a big ass. If the self were to be reached, it would mean that the self is not here and now but it has yet to be attained. So I say the self is not reached. You are the self. You are already that. In Sufism, they talk about the ceasing of existence and the ceasing of that ceasing as being necessary to the realization of God. And that's just saying what we've been talking about all along. The ceasing of existence is a state of kenosis. And then you have to have a ceasing of kenosis. Kenosis is just a state. And I've been warning you about this all along. Kenosis is not realization. It's the opportunity for realization. But don't mistake kenosis for the realization. The Buddhists have the same way of talking about this. They say, if you get stuck in emptiness, not even the Buddha can save you. So this is a mainstream mystical teaching of all traditions. They just have their own little way of putting it, that in order to realize God, you need to have a ceasing of existence and then a ceasing of the ceasing. Now, Ibn Arabi comes along and he says, most of those who know God make a ceasing of existence and the ceasing of that ceasing a condition of attaining the knowledge of God. And that is an error and a clear oversight. For the knowledge of God does not presuppose the ceasing of existence, nor the ceasing of that ceasing. For things have no existence, and what does not exist cannot cease to exist. For the ceasing to be implies the positing of existence, and that is polytheism. Then if thou knowest thyself without existence, or without ceasing to be, then thou knowest God, and if not, then not. This little reference to polytheism is uh, in um, Islam in general. The, the main confession of faith is La ilaha illallah. There are no gods but God. And the worst uh, error, I guess we'd say, you can make in Islam is to set up anything equal to God. So that's why they're so against polytheism, is any worshiping any other gods but Allah. But the Sufis come along and read that very saying to say there is nothing but Allah. So anything that you think exists, you fall into the air of polytheism. You see, you set up something other than Allah, as though there could be anything other than Allah. So, does everybody get what he's saying? How can you have the ceasing of existence when nothing exists? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous, you know? That's
2: why you can't find it when you look for it. What? And that's why you can't find it when you look for it. Yes, 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 it's just not
1: fair! (laughs) Exactly right! That's why you can never find it!
2: You can find a big thought wad. What? You can find a big thought wad that thinks it might be it, but A big what?
1: A thought wad, you know. A thought wad! I, I guess, I guess you can. That's what you will find, in fact. A big thought wad. <laughs> clogging up the brain.
2: You can't find it. That's what you just can't find it. You can knock yourself out looking, and you will not
1: find it. Exactly right. Now you've got it. You will never, ever find it. (laughs) Little self. Yes, you're right, because we have this confusion. No, little self. So what the mystics are saying is, you, little self, that self, that thing, that wad of thought or whatever, is never, ever going to get enlightened. It's never going to get enlightened because it doesn't exist. It can't get enlightened. And consciousness... Can never be enlightened because it's always been enlightened. And we're talking about this consciousness. This has to be very clear. Not some woo-ee consciousness that you're going to experience when you go into high state of samadhi. When you go into high state of samadhi, the consciousness does not change at all. All you do is start eliminating objects from consciousness, appearances from consciousness. But nothing's going to happen to consciousness. It's the same whether it's cluttered or not. It's the same whether you're deluded or not. It's the same whether all sorts of a million thoughts are swirling around your mind or not. It does not change. It does not matter. But look, right now, isn't that true of our awareness? It's just awareness. The confusion isn't in the awareness. The confusion is because the things get confused the appearances. Awareness isn't confused. I tell you a story where it's set up so you're expecting some answer and then the mind's went in. Oh, and Joshua goes down and he investigates the monk and he comes back and he says, I investigated and the awareness is perfectly clear. It's waiting. <laughs> And nothing's happening. And then then the mind, the thinking mind, gets confused. It starts thinking, well, what did that mean? Why did he tell us what is going on? But the awareness of the confusion is still as clear as a bell. Always has been. You see what I'm talking about? Mystics go on. That's not the end of it. (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) Maybe we should stop while we're ahead. But they do go on. Here's Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. And his disciples ask him, When will the kingdom come? And he tells them, It will not come by expectation. They will not say, See here or see there. But the kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth and men do not see it. We're all waiting for the kingdom to come, aren't we? We're waiting for the kingdom to arrive. When we get into Samadhi, the kingdom will come. When I can stop all thought, the kingdom will come. When I can do this, when I can do that, when I can master this or that. But Jesus is saying, no, you keep looking here, there, where is the kingdom? It's here already. You don't have to find it. Here's Zen master Hakun. In Buddhism, by the way, we get the creme de creme usually, but in you know Buddhism practiced by the masses, they have very uh, exoteric forms, one of which is Pure Land Buddhism where you practice a lot of devotion, you say the name of Amitabha Buddha, and then when you die, you go to a pure land. And then you become enlightened in the pure land. So here's what uh, Haikun says. Men like Chu Hung, not having penetrated the truth of the Buddha's wonderful, skillful means, cling mulishly to the deluded notion of a pure land and a Buddha that exists separately, apart from the mind. They are incapable of truly grasping that there is no such thing as a Buddha with his own Buddha land. That the village they see right in front of them and the village behind them and everywhere else, it is all Buddha land. Isn't he saying the exact same thing that Jesus said? The exact same thing? Here's uh, the Kabbalist, Joseph Gakatila, he fills everything, and He is everything. God is not something separate up there in the heavens. He fills everything, he is everything. There's nothing separate from God. It's just what the Sufis say. And then here's Wang Po again. This is one of my favorites. That which is before you is it, in all its fullness. Utterly complete. He's talking about right now. He's not talking about once we get into meditation. That'll be true then too. But it's true right now. It's true when you're feeling sick. You got a fever, groggy. It's true when you're clear as a bell. It's always true. So, this is the problem. We have never left paradise. The fall is a delusion. It didn't happen. This is it. And so all the seeking, not just the spiritual seeking, but the seeking all our lives, all our lives is futile. What we're seeking is already here. What spiritual path does is it doesn't create your seeking. You've been seeking since the time you were born. It just takes all that seeking and it tries to show you, convince you of this truth. That's all. To get you to stop seeking. For just one moment. Just, just one little moment. Truly stop-seeking for just one little moment. Not a fake stop-seeking where we all go and say, okay, we're all going to sit here and stop-seeking. Okay, I ain't seeking for nothing now. But I mean, with a mind, (laughs) even the slightest bit of moving around, just really stop-seeking. Yes?
2: I had this dream the night about granola, and it was like um, we wanted to have granola for breakfast
1: but I thought I had to go to the store and get the granola, but we already had granola. That was a dream. Yes, that's a good teaching dream. That's That's the teaching I'm giving this morning. We already have the granola. You don't have to go to the store. That is the teaching. Exactly. Very good. Thank you.
0: How do I sit down?
1: How do you sit down? The one instruction none of you could do right now I want you all sit down right now. <laughs> if, if somehow you didn't know you were sitting down, you might try to sit down, right? You might wonder, what is he talking about? How can I sit down, you know? But the truth of the matter is you can sit down. Here's what Abdullah uh, Ansari of Herat says about Allah. To find you involves neither time nor means. The one who is dependent on seeking is veiled. To seek you is a remnant of separation and dispersion. You are before everything. So what would it mean to seek you? To seek unity through duality is being lost. Anytime you have a question, a spiritual question, an ultimate question, the answer is before you ask it. But the before you asked it is the now before you asked it. You see, right now is before you asked the question, right? So you didn't ask the question yet, have you? So this is the now. This is what we're talking about. Once you ask the question, your mind is looking out there. This is why Eddie Hilleson says, we have to become as simple as the falling rain and the growing corn. Here's um, Lao Tzu. Therefore, the sage keeps to the deed that consists in taking no action and practices the teaching that uses no words. See, I love to do this. Sometimes you can string these teachings together, pick them out from all these traditions, and you run them together. It's like you get long paragraphs that make perfect sense, and you can jump all over the world, all over different cultures, everywhere, and it makes perfect sense. Meister Eckhart says, Truly, you are the hidden God in the ground of the soul, where God's ground and the soul's ground are one ground. The more one seeks you, the less one finds you. You should seek him so that you find him nowhere. If you do not seek him, then you will find him. Seeking God is what distracts us from God. Seeking enlightenment is what distracts us from light. Seeking happiness is what distracts us from happiness. Here's what Longchenpa says. In the meditation, which is the great natural self-perfection, there is no need of modifications and transformations. Whatever arises is the great perfection. There is no need of accepting and renouncing. As in the primordial state itself, the world and beings of samsara and nirvana abide evenly. Maintain the unfabricated intrinsic awareness like an infant child. If you reside in the groundless state through detachment from the thinking mind, you will accomplish spontaneously and changelessly the inconceivable sovereignty. Dzogchen means the great perfection. That's the translation. Okay? So that we've been doing Dzogchen practices here, or we've been leading up to Dzogchen practices, I should say. The practice which is no practice. We're going to go over this again, but the idea here is you don't do nothing. Don't interfere with nothing. You don't change nothing. You just leave everything alone. Let it arise and pass. It is already the great perfection. There's no need to do anything to it. There's one little still caveat that we just have to make sure that we're aware of. Sat Naim gives it to us. There is some risk of misunderstanding this matter. If you only get half the message, the non-meditation part, and you miss the first part, which is to remain undistracted. People who are already not meditating are constantly being carried away by the three poisons of attachment, aversion, or dullness. That is not meditating at all. So if one is told, don't meditate in that situation, that makes no sense. In genuine Dzogchen training, we need to let go of the notion of meditating. But if one simply gives up meditating and becomes like any other ordinary person, that is no use at all. One needs to have no sense of meditating and yet be totally undistracted at the same time. That's the capital. So, we're not meditating, but we're also not just going to sit here and space out and and be totally lost in thought. But we're not going to meditate on anything. We're going to abandon all those distinctions about the various sense fields. We're not going to label anything. We're not going to watch any phenomena. We're not going to self-dissolve anything. We ain't going to do nothing. But we're not also going to get carried away by the story of I. So, let us take a uh, pee meditation here. We can still meditate while you're peeing, and then we'll come back and we'll stop meditating, all right? <laughs> all right. Um, we are going to now do the meditation, which is non-meditation, the practice, which is no practice. So, let's go over Longchenpa's instructions once again. By the way, Longchenpa is considered in the Tibetan tradition one of the great, great Dzogchen masters. So I'm pointing this out to you because if you hang out in in spiritual circles these days, you hear a lot about Dzogchen. Like a lot of things in our culture, it's become kind of a fad. So I just want you to know where this is coming from. This is not some recent teaching. I think he was the 14th century or something like that. Anyway, here's what he says. In the meditation, which is the great natural self-perfection, there is no need of modification and transformations. So in other words, and now we've come to this ultimate stage of meditation, which ceases to be meditation, so to speak. We don't have to modify anything. When we try to focus on a mantra, our breath, in a certain sense, we're modifying our, our normal, ordinary mind. You see what I mean? And Transformations refers to a lot of tantric practices, transforming negative things into positive things and afflicted emotions and all that sort of stuff. And rightly so. He's not knocking those, but now we don't do any of that. Don't need to do any of that. Whatever arises is the great perfection. Whatever arises in terms of sights, sounds, sensations, thoughts, feelings, emotions, desires, aversions, da-da-da, it's all the great perfection. It's all the kingdom of God. So there is no need of accepting and renouncing. We don't need to renounce anything here that's an obstacle. We don't need to accept something that's good or something like that. We don't need to worry about having to get rid of something and hang on to something else or all that. As in the primordial state itself, the world and beings of samsara and nirvana abide evenly. That's the kind of technical Tibetan thing, but basically what he's saying is that in relation to consciousness, whether beings are enlightened or whether they're deluded or samsara, nirvana, whatever the experience is, it's all the same to consciousness. There's no experience without consciousness. Consciousness is fundamental. So whatever your experience is, good or bad or whatever, this is the ground. Maintain the unfabricated intrinsic awareness. The unfabricated intrinsic awareness. Intrinsic awareness is this awareness. Everybody aware? See, this isn't a big philosophical thing. That's true, right? Okay, there is awareness. This is the unfabricated intrinsic awareness. Don't go looking for some other awareness, some special state of awareness, some clear state of awareness or unclear state of awareness or whatever. This is this is what he's talking about. Just see, just write this. Fancy way of saying ordinary mind. Uh, maintain the unfabricated, intrinsic awareness like an infant child. You know how children sit and watch things? Uncomplicated. They're natural. They're not meditating on anything. They're not you know, fabricating something, and that, you know. If you reside in the groundless state through detachment from the thinking mind, don't go looking for any groundless state. This is it. This is the same intrinsic, unfabricated awareness is the groundless state. See, it's groundless, because that awareness, you can't get a hold of it. it does It's groundless. It doesn't have any, you know... You just reside there. Now, the only little tiny caveat here is with detachment from the thinking mind. This is so critical here. You do not get lost in the story of I. But if the story of I wants to start going and it wants to elaborate, let it. It, too, is part of the great perfection. All those of you who have been thinking that, well, somehow I'm going to get rid of the story of I, let it alone. What's the matter with you? That's God, too. Just let it do what it wants to do. Now, see, we've been trying to fabricate and maintain and do all these sorts of things on this retreat. Now, it's just like having a horse that we've been trying to train and we've been making do this and that, making do what we want it or trying to, you know, because it doesn't always do it like horses, if you've ever ridden horses. And now what we're going to do is we're just going to let the horse loose. We're not even going to let it in a corral. I mean, we're going to send it out to the prairie. Let it run wild on the prairie. The only thing is don't climb up on its back and run with it. Just watch. Let it do whatever it wants to do. Just don't climb up on its back. If you find you are on its back, just bail out. That's all. Don't try to change the horse and just bail off and just wherever you find yourself, there you are, and that's the intrinsic awareness, okay? If you reside in the groundless state through detachment from the thinking mind, You will accomplish spontaneously and changelessly. Spontaneously. The definition of spontaneous is that it wasn't planned. It wasn't done. It wasn't an act of will. It just happens spontaneously. It has no cause. That is spontaneous. Things that are caused aren't spontaneous. Spontaneous just happens. You will accomplish spontaneously and changelessly the inconceivable sovereignty, enlightenment, realization, whatever. Okay? You get how simple this is? I mean, that's the problem. It's so simple, that's what makes it difficult for it. But it's really simple, 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 simple. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Here we go.
0: If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
1: Lao Tzu says, In the pursuit of learning, one knows more every day. In the pursuit of the way, one does less every day. One does less and less until one does nothing at all. And when one does nothing at all, there is nothing that is undone. I always have to make this remark about Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching because This was the most popular spiritual book in the Haight-Ashbury in the 60s. Everybody was reading Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching. And the reason they loved this book was because there were no rules, there was no discipline, there was no doctrine, there was no dogma, there was, you know, all this. So it was really nice to sit around and read it to each other and quote it and all that. Actually, it's not true. If you read the Tao Te Ching carefully, you see that it's just like any other mystical tradition. You're supposed to act without any attachment to the fruit of your action. Uh, you imitate the Tao. The Tao serves all creatures and asks nothing in return, no reward, no merit. So you imitate the Tao. The sage does that. You know, you uh, abandon all desires. Uh, you don't go for profit and gain and things like that. And then we get passages like this, which sort of outline the whole path. And he's contrasting the worldly path. In the worldly path, you do more, you learn more, you accumulate more, whether it's possessions or knowledge or whatever, you know. And in the spiritual path, when you're following the Tao, you do less and less. You discard things, you jettison things. Particularly self-centered, self-willed actions. And so finally, you arrive at the point where you do nothing at all. And then he makes a little point here, he says... Uh, And when one does nothing at all, there is nothing that is undone. So just in case you think doing nothing at all is becoming a catatonic or something, you see what I mean? So it's not the end of action, it's the end of the doer of the action. So we have arrived at this point on our retreat, if not on your path. There's a difference here. We've arrived at this point on the retreat, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've arrived at this point at the end of your path. Perhaps you have, perhaps you haven't. That's not up to me at all. So then the question arises, how can we do nothing? Which is the $64,000 question that some of you have raised in various forms, and they're all the same. How can we surrender our will? Uh, What action can you take not to act? Is there any possible way we can do that? And in truth, if you're asking that question, you haven't arrived at this point on the path. It's only when you can't do anything more that you've arrived here. So all these questions about how do I get there, how do I surrender, how do I do this, and so forth, they can't be answered, but they're indications you're not here yet. And that's fine. I mean, you know, even Ramana Maharshi had a 15-minute path. He took the whole path in <laughs> 15 minutes. But he did take the path, you know. Um, this is what Ramana Maharshi himself says about this, in fact. sadnas, sadnas are practices, it's a Sanskrit term. Sadnas are needed so long as one has not realized. Let's be very clear about this. There are people who go around today in Ramana Maharshi's name and claim to be his disciples who say we don't need any sadhanas, don't need any practices. That's not what Ramana Maharshi taught. Maybe that's true. But that is not what Ramana Maharshi taught. He says right here, sadhanas are needed as long as one is not realized. They are for putting an end to obstacles, which is precisely how we have been using our practices in this retreat and how we practice at the center. We use practices to put an end to obstacles. That's the whole point. If there's an obstacle, we require practice. If there's no obstacle, you don't require practice. If you can sit down and place your attention on some object and leave it there for half an hour and it doesn't waver, there's no distractions, there's absolutely no reason in the world to practice concentration meditation. No reason whatsoever. If you can't do that, then you have to practice concentration meditation. This part, I say, is about mysticism, is not mysterious. This is all very logical and clear and so forth. You don't have to do it, but at least if you want to do it, this part is not the mystery part. Then he goes on to say, finally there comes a stage when a person feels helpless, notwithstanding the sadhanas. So here you are, you're practicing long, and you are getting rid of some obstacles. You're know, you getting rid of some attachments, you see them fall away, you feel freer, this and that and so forth. And you're practicing long, and then you don't quite know what to do next. And you're doing the sadhanas, but they don't seem to be working, they don't seem to be helping anymore. And then he goes on to say, he is unable to pursue the much cherished sadhna's also. So you can't even practice. You sit down to practice, you can't do it anymore. Maybe some of you have felt a little taste of this somewhere along the line. You can't, you can't do it. It is then that God's power is realized. The self reveals itself. After practices come to a stop, not as a result of practice, not doing practice. And if we just for a moment check this out against other traditions, you can now start to see the whole point of the Zen Koan practice that brings the mind to a stop. When you have totally exhausted trying to figure out what is the sound of one hand clapping or why Joshu went to investigate and what he found out. When you come to your Zen master with all your clever ideas and interpretations and you've got nothing but a whack, and finally after months, if not years, you sit down and the mind will not think up anything anymore. It's run through it all. It's gone through all its numbers and trips. It comes to a stop. This is surrender. See, it is surrendered. Nobody surrendered it. It is surrendered. It can't do anything more. For those of you who remember uh, my book, I came to a place in the path uh, after I realized I wasn't going to get the girl and then I went through this deepening, deepening state of kenosis and I realized, well, I mean, there's no point in practicing anymore. I quit practicing. I gave up all my disciplines, all the vows I had for my trip, one of which was, for instance, not to eat in fancy restaurants and not to sleep in fancy hotels between these visits to these communities, the camp. And I thought, well, I mean, I went headed for the fanciest restaurant I could find up there in Olympia, Washington. I mean, not Olympia, but uh, uh, Sheldon. It was pretty good, actually, for a little town. And I checked into what I thought was a pretty luxurious place. It turned out to be a dump, but I didn't know it at the time. And I was too tired to go on. So, this is an interesting thing. It's not, it's not. In the practice, it's after the practice is exhausted. But you have to exhaust the practice. How are you going to get to the place where the practice is exhausted unless you practice? And if you are a true seeker, you see, you can't really quit doing this anyway. You don't realize that you're already surrendered. You are surrendered the path. You may, you know, gripe and groan and get angry at the teacher and all this, but it doesn't matter. If you're not a true seeker, you will quit, you will stop practicing, you will go back to law school and, you know, and that's fine. At least you'll find that out and maybe, you know, later in life or the next life or whatever, you'll take it up again. So it's not up to you anyway. You don't know that yet, but that is true. It's a very good way to test this out. Any of you who are disgusted with this retreat when you get back, stop practicing for a while. Stay away from the center for a while. See if you can do that. I tried to get off the path. I thought I had a choice. And finally I realized I had no choice. I tried several times. I said, this is going nowhere. This is terrible. This is awful. I was having more fun before, going going partying and all that. <laughs> I tried to go back to that life, and it didn't work anymore. Uh, well, what can you do? So you could say that the last principle here, the surrender, we keep looking for how to do that, and it sort of sneaks up on us. See? And the minute we are ready to reassert our will, then we find out, well, we have been surrendered. Somebody surrendered us there along the way. We didn't even know it. At least a piece of us here. So, here's Meister Eckhart about how to do nothing. Who are those who honor God? Those who have wholly gone out of themselves and who do not seek for what is theirs in anything, whatever it may be, great or little, who are not looking beneath themselves, or above themselves, or beside themselves, or at themselves, who are not desiring possessions, or honors, or ease, or pleasure, or profit, or inwardness, or holiness, or reward, or the kingdom of heaven, and who have gone out from all this, from everything that is theirs. These people honor God, and they honor properly and they give him what is his. Now, listen to this uh, little passage of Sukhne Rimshe that we've been following off and on here. We need to be resting on nothing, like a bird soaring in the sky. There is space above, there is space below, there is space in front, behind, and on both sides. And the bird is not dwelling on anything whatsoever. It is soaring in midair, that is the way to sit. Do not lean forward into something. Do not lean back into something that you rest on. Do not settle down on your seat either. Be suspended in midair with space above, below, and on all sides. As a matter of fact, your very being is space. It is no different from space. Isn't that just really what Meister Eckhart said? Mm. I mean, to the point of pointing out the directions, not looking here, the left, the right, the that, mm. the that. I mean, almost word for word. So if anybody comes along and says, well, I'm I'm in the Tibetan tradition, they have the highest Slochen teachings, and you're a Christian, don't worry about it. Let their minds grab onto that one, and that'll be part of their story about how they're in the tradition with the highest teachings and all that. Just leave them alone. <laughs> so... Really, what this practice is about, actually, is leaving everything alone. Doing nothing, translated into just everyday ordinary language, is about leaving everything alone. And that means in the mind, leaving the mind alone, leaving what's going on alone. Our problem under delusion is we're always trying to shape everything to our will. We're always trying to rearrange the furniture. And this is a whole teaching about leaving all alone, that it's okay the way it is. God didn't make any mistakes when he designed the world. He did not make any mistakes when he designed your mind either. So it's a chance to just leave it alone. And there's a story that illustrates this. When I was in Vietnam, when I arrived in Vietnam, they give you a very short three to five day orientation in jungle warfare. Because unless you've had advanced infantry training or something, uh, you know, they give you, they teach you how to shoot a rifle, basically, and that's it. So you get over there and you go out in the bush and they teach you about booby traps and how to fight guerrillas. I mean, it's not really that much of an orientation and you're so sort of in shock anyway. But there's one thing I remember that's always stuck in my mind. This uh, sergeant from the South, uh, he was telling us about booby traps. And he said, you know, he said, the GI, he can't leave nothing alone. He sees something, he gotta pick it up, he gotta kick it, he gotta handle it, he just can't leave nothing alone. I said, Charlie, and Charlie's the term for the Viet Cong, he says, Charlie knows this about you, see? So what he does, he takes an empty Coca-Cola bottle or something, and he booby traps it, and he puts it off there right on the trail, you know, Cause he knows you GI's, you are gonna come along, and you can't leave it alone. You gonna have to kick it, and you kick it, and boom! So he says, now when you're walking around here in the jungle stuff, leave everything alone. Don't touch nothing. <laughs> so this is what we're trying to do here. So walk through our minds. So we don't even have to walk through our minds. We just sit here. But when all these things appear, we just leave it all alone, cause it might be booby trapped. Okay. <laughs> Okay, and now I'm not taking any questions about the practice. We are going to just practice this no practice, this effortless contemplation. So, shall we begin?
0: If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you have familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
1: Okay, are there any uh, questions about the, the no practice? Yes.
2: Well, I found myself at some point practicing just because I was so damn bored. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Great. I was bored and my body hurt and I said, I can't stand this anymore. I, and I it was like I was using <laughs> practice to escape. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, there's no escape. <laughs> there's no escape. The mind cannot ever escape. It's wonderful. Yeah, I wonder, like, the uh, what we did, how is that different from like, choiceless awareness? Well, choiceless awareness, uh, there is some effort to maintain a certain level of uh, mindfulness. And one oh. way to to explain that is choiceless awareness. You actually want your mind to be like a mirror. So attention is not moving anywhere. Attention is just absolutely still. You see what I mean? And then whatever arises gets reflected in the mirror and passes away. But there's no movement of attention to go anywhere. When we do nothing, we don't even try to hold attention still. If attention wants to go someplace, it goes someplace. If you, if you start having all sorts of Thoughts about the job you have to do when you get back and you know how much work you have to do and all that, the attention goes there. No problem. Just don't get lost in it. See, this realize what is going on. What is going on is my mind is thinking about all the work I have to do when I get back, and that's what it wants to do, so I'm gonna let it do it. So there's no attempt to hold attention. In choiceless awareness is a little effort. Very little effort. And it's a very diffused effort, so it's not like holding attention on an object. But it's just it's a, uh, just a holding still, slightly. In doing nothing, we even let go of that. That's why it's called effortless contemplation. Totally effortless contemplation. And you don't need any effort whatsoever to do the practice. You only need the effort at a specific moment if you find you have been totally lost in a train of thought. Then you need to apply effort right there in that moment to break it, to put you back into effortless contemplation. Good question. Okay. Today is solo day. So there's no mandatory meditation. You don't have to show up for any meditations. It's after this morning session here. Uh, there'll be no evening session. So after dinner, you're just on your own. You don't have to come here. There'll be no teachings going on. So let me uh, run through, just as a reminder, what practices we did on this retreat. We began with concentration and choiceless awareness. Concentration, picking some object. Uh, most of you picked the breath, but some of you had mantra. Some object that you just used to train attention to be still. And this is the beginning practice for most people. This is something you want to continue doing through your whole path, uh, even if you're doing other very advanced practices. It always enhances whatever other practices you're doing. There are always exceptions to this, and some people find it very, very difficult to do that, and they find that they can do choices awareness and get concentrated quite rapidly and quite quickly. So this is not an h- absolute hard and fast rules for most people most of the time. In any case, uh, then we used uh, choiceless awareness to contemplate impermanence. And this is another thing that you're never really done with. The contemplation of impermanence is a really very profound practice. And one of the things that I think is certainly true of me, and I think it's true maybe of a lot of Americans anyway, I don't know about other people's, that we have a tendency to get a little taste of something, oh, and then we think we know the whole thing. And when you do particularly contemplating impermanence, it really has depths and depths to reveal to you. You can start to get a little direct experience of the moment-to-moment impermanence of things without too much trouble. And that's quite interesting, and it gives you a sense of the futility of grasping and all that. And then you go deeper, and then other things start to come up. First of all, the fear we talked a little bit about, or, or sadness about it. And you keep going deeper and deeper. And ultimately, you finally see the beauty of it. And if you did nothing else, eventually, you would discover how everything self-liberates. Because that is that is the nature of impermanence. That's what makes everything impermanent. It self-liberates. So you wouldn't even need any teacher or teachings to point that out to you if you just stayed with contemplating impermanence. So the only reason to have a teacher come and do that is is to give you a little shortcut. You know, it's to point something out that might take you, I don't know, Months to discover, and maybe you discover a little quicker if somebody points it out to you. So, then we went on to watching uh, how thoughts self-liberate. We just pay attention to the fact that they do self-liberate. We don't really have to push them away. We don't have to do anything with them. In fact, when we're training in concentration, we're trying to ignore them. But not only do we not want to necessarily ignore them, ultimately they are our helper. Ultimately, in that self-liberation, they take us to the groundless ground. They take us to that empty, clear awareness, that consciousness, directly take us there. So they are actually themselves pointers. So they become our allies and our friends if we don't get distracted by them, if we don't get caught up in them. All the way through this, this is the one big deal, not to be caught up in them. And then we saw how thoughts are actually charged with emotional energies of desire and aversion. That they are not just random, that thoughts come because of desire and aversion. That's what generates thoughts in all these schemes. So so we sort of watch deeper, uh, below the level of actual formal thought or verbal thought, there's this movement of, desire and aversion or this arising of this energy of desire and aversion which gives rise to this movement of grasping or pushing away. So if we don't follow the the desire with a grasping, we just allow the desire to be, it also will self-liberate and it also will take us back into that pure space of consciousness, that limitless ground. Not only that, but the energy that was in the desire or the aversion itself will dissipate into the awareness and actually make the awareness clearer and brighter for us. So again, here, desire and aversion become our helpers rather than our enemies. If we can be skillful about this and if we are not distracted. And then finally, we got to the point we were allowing all phenomena self-liberate. Everything self-liberates. Everything takes us back to this groundless ground of pure consciousness. So the whole universe is actually a display of this and in being so is teaching us about this. It's teaching us where it all comes from and where it all goes back to. The myriad creatures return to the roots and we follow them to the roots and we find this constancy. The constancy is not a static constancy, it's the constancy of this awareness. It's just always here, this eternal, ever-present ocean of consciousness. And all the time here we're abandoning effort because it takes some effort to concentrate. And then it takes some effort to hold attention still like a mirror to do choiceless awareness. And then more and more we're realizing we don't need this effort. We can abandon the effort. We can just let the effort go. And finally we end up just doing nothing. If we want to have a name for it, it's really non-meditation, undistracted non meditation A key thing. Undistracted non-meditation. Not distracted non-meditation. That's what we do all the time. And that is delusion. But undistracted non-meditation. Effortless contemplation. Effortlessly being aware. Which is actually our natural state. We don't have to make any effort to be aware. Awareness is there. And our efforts are what distort it. So... Just sitting in the silence at the center of the world. Just being there, right there in the silence. And the silence is not a static still silence. It's a silence so vast, so indestructible, that any sort of sounds, thunder and lightning and bombs and all that, can't really touch the silence. And in fact, they depend on the silence. They couldn't be there without the silence. The same thing with motion and stillness. The violentest motion couldn't happen without that stillness, without the absence of it. It needs the absence of it to be present and and go again. So it's just to be that. Sometimes it's talked that is as merging with and all that, and that's great, that's descriptive, but even that is too much. We don't have to merge with anything it's there. And we are that. And everything we think we are are just phenomena arising out of that and going back to that all the time. So that's what we want to discover. So anytime this all comes to a stop, this is the precious opportunity for realization. And as many of you discovered however, this the paradox is you can't make it happen. Because any making it happen means it hasn't stopped. (laughs) There's the making it happen that's going on. So we hover in this paradox, back and forth, back and forth. We try, we get bored, we stop, we try again, da 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 We just have to stay there. We just have to stay in the fire of that. And if you are a true spiritual seeker, you have no choice to stay there anyway. So it's fine. So, having said all that, now it seems like we've made a linear progression. From the most fundamental concentration practice all the way out to the highest Dzogchen teachings possible. Now, I just want to read you something. This is from this little piece, Centering. And this is Devi and Shiva. Devi's Shiva's consort. Okay. Oh my gosh, I didn't bring my reading glasses. Maybe I will ask Tom to read this. Yes, would you do that?
0: Devi says, O Shiva, what is your reality? What is this wonder-filled universe? What is this life beyond form, pervading forms? How may we enter it fully, above space and time, names and descriptions? Let my doubts be cleared. Shiva replies, Radiant one, this experience may dawn between two breaths. After breath comes in, and just before turning up, the beneficence. As breath turns from down to up, and again as breath curves from up to down, through both these turns, realize. Or, whenever in-breath and out-breath fuse, at this instant, Touch the energyless, energy-filled center. Or, when breath is all out and stopped of itself, or all in and stopped, in such universal pause, one's small self vanishes. This is difficult only for the impure.
1: Well, my gosh, that little breath practice we started with can take you right to enlightenment. So we are back full circle again, aren't we? You never have to stop doing the breath. You never have to go through all this. If you just stay with the breath, that could be your practice for enlightenment. And then that last little line says, this is only difficult for the impure. The impure is only people who are distracted. There's nothing to do with your moral qualities or whatever although moral qualities are related to distraction but ultimately it comes down to it this isn't difficult if you're not distracted if you're distracted it's difficult if you're thinking about other things it's difficult but if your attention is completely there in those moments of the turning around the transformation of any phenomena as the Kabbalist said being is revealed all the time so the first practice is the last practice Alpha and omega. So, don't ever feel, oh, I have to go back to kindergarten. I'm not getting this. I have to go back and do my concentration practice. It's all practice for enlightenment. Practice is enlightenment. Enlightenment is practice. So in the ultimate scheme of things, there's no such thing as the higher teaching. It's just the way we present it. We have to have some way of unfolding it in time, otherwise it would be a big mess. So we unfold it this way. Okay, this is the last teaching of the retreat. Tuku Urjen Rinpoche, a Zorchen master, says, A master once said, Wakefulness is beyond being fettered and beyond being freed. This statement is very significant. Something fettered would have to be untied, liberated. We would have to do a job. But being primordially unfettered, we don't need to free it again. We need only attend to the true. So we're going to sit here. I'm going to ring the gong, but other than that, we're just going to sit here. And we're going to attend to the true rather than attend to the delusion. That's all. Okay. Very simple. Here we go.
0: We've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing meditation at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions.